Please remain standing and open your Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 7, Acts 7 verses 9 through 16. And this is what God's Word says. Uh, We're in the middle of Stephen's sermon. He's under persecution. And so this is the middle part of of his response uh, before he gets stoned for his faith. Verses 9 through 16. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him rule over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Please be seated. And Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit's help. As we look at your word, teach us, remind us, encourage us, convict us, whatever it is that you know that we need through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I guess I was torn between the the two titles, uh, making sense of it all because it's hard to make sense of what's going on in, in this world these days. Things are moving at a rapid pace. And then I thought maybe the better Tyler, a better introduction would be, what in the world is God doing? Because we know it's God who's doing something. And it fits with where we're at in this text. Uh, remember, Stephen was preaching the gospel. Stephen had been set aside Hands laid on him. He'd been part of the food distribution. He'd been a, a um, some say it's a precursor, not necessarily the first deacon, but the, the lead into what would become uh, deacons in the New Testament church that we still have today. And he was preaching. And he was telling people about the Lord. He was full of grace and power. It says in verse 8 of chapter 6, he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But as always seems to happen when the gospel is going forward, there was some pushback. And they pushed him back. And first there were arguments and disputes. And when those didn't go so well, there became lies and character assassinations. And they found people to uh, speak against him. And it says in verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And what we see is classic mob action. I would say it's one thing to say, I believe in this and I believe in this cause so much. And I 
believe with God directing me that the best thing I can do with my time and my body is to go make a stand in public. People have done that for various things, whether that's a a pro-life situation or political or a social situation. If you believe the Lord is calling you and you are being a good steward of your body and your time, then do. But when it becomes mob action, that can quickly go into sin. I don't know a time when it hasn't in Scripture. I can't think of a time where a mob did much good. The Bible says, My son, when sinners entice thee, consent thou not. The Bible reminds us that the wrath of man cannot bring about the righteousness of God. Don't do your demonstrations if that's what you do. Don't do your uh, representing your cause, whatever that may be that God's calling you into. Don't do that with anger. And the setting of this narrative is a mob action that's going to result in the death of someone who is simply speaking an alternative opinion to the accepted teaching of that day. It was about power by the authorities, and it was a false narrative that ended him in this position that will take his life. We'll be there in two weeks. Complete with necessary virtue signaling about what they were doing and how righteous they were and how spiritual they were as they threw their stones. It sounded so righteous to them and so spiritual to shut his voice permanently. And what about Joseph, who he's preaching about in his defense? Why did the brothers silence him by selling him as a slave? Why was Joseph thrown into the pit? Well, they did not like his speech. They didn't like his words. They didn't like him telling the dreams he had had. They didn't like the favor his father had bestowed on him. So as Stephen proceeds in his defense of of the gospel that he was preaching, last week we looked and we saw what uh, God had done and how God had moved Abram and Abraham. Now we see... Uh, Stephen moving in through church history to the life of Joseph. And in Joseph, uh, in Genesis 37, verses 17 and following, here's that story for those who need to be reminded of it or who haven't heard it yet. Uh, Joseph's brothers were out keeping the sheep. Joseph's father sent him to go check on his brothers because he hadn't heard from them for a while. Joseph was wearing this coat. We call it a coat of many covers and colors. Uh, every Bible story book I've ever had has had like a multicolored coat. The Hebrew translation, basically, they don't really know if it was a coat of many colors or what it was. The literal would be a coat of palms. And nobody knows what the coat of palms is. They just know there was something about his coat that factors into the story. And uh, he had been blessed. His, his dad Uh, was playing some favorites. His dad loved uh, Joseph's mom more than the other brother's mom. And Joseph had had these dreams, remember, where the sun, moon, and stars bowed down to him. And, And so Joseph is obeying what his father had said. He's out to see his brothers. It says, um, 
he came in verse, uh, Genesis 37, verse 17 and following. It says, the man told Joseph, your brothers have gone away. I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit, and somebody says, well, where was Reuben? And I always used to say he was out eating a sandwich somewhere. And you're supposed to groan and say, that's the stupidest joke I've heard all morning. I can see. Thank you, Ruth, for that smile. That was good. Um, Reuben returned from wherever he was. He was gone when they did all this. So he was gone for a while doing something. And he saw that Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers, and he said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. See, even the hostility. How can you be so cruel to your father? And they didn't say, See if it's our brother's robe or Joseph's, whether it's your son's robe or not. Something there. And he identified it and he said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, the hypocrites. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, that's the grave, down to death. I'm going to die and I'll go to join my son in death, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Listen, people get together, and if they get together and their hearts aren't for the Lord, if they don't get together for a holy purpose and they maintain that purpose to do something together, for instance, as a church or as a a movement to affect good things biblically and spiritually, 
Things can go downhill fast. People egg each other on. Is it Christian to join a mob? Whether it's your brothers and half-brothers, whether it's your religious leaders and people in your ethnic city, is it Christian to join that group to steal and kill and destroy? The answer is never, never. What if you truly think your cause is right? Still never. Giving way to unbridled passion, forgetting your grounding principles, being manipulated and then joining in a rush to make someone pay. No cases where it's good. Cases in our history, those lynchings that happened, that vigilante justice. We're right, we're righteous and stirring each other on. Be careful and be guarded against that. For several months now in our own country, we've seen what can happen when people who feel passionate about something get together and the crowd starts moving away from demonstrating into rioting. How are Christians to respond in these passionate days? How are we to act? Well, in the book of Romans, as as Paul writes all this great theological things about our salvation, he then switches gears around chapter 12 and talks about how to live within society and within our government. Romans 12, 14, following. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Think about that. And think about that. That used to seem so easy. Now it sounds very difficult, doesn't it? Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. They did this, so they've got this coming. Don't do that. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. These are words for Christians. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Good words for today. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Send pizza to the congressional staff. Send pizza to the police department. Maybe you could put a note and say, I disagree with you on this policy and this policy and this policy, but there is no way that Christians are right to take vengeance into their own hands. What do we do? How do we respond in these terrifying times? We'll get to that, but the first item of business is to answer the question, what is God doing? And there are parallels that we see in our text this morning, parallels between Stephen and Joseph and things that will matter for us in the coming days, okay? 
And the first thing we need to realize is three points. First thing, we may not realize it, but we are not ultimately in control. We forget we are not ultimately in control. Joseph was not in control of his situation. He was going down to see his brothers, give a report back. No idea that when he was coming, they were talking, let's kill him. No, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in the pit. No, let's do this. He had no idea. He was not in control of his situation. He was taken by surprise. Reuben thought, being the oldest, that he could be in control of the situation. And he thought he had it settled. Okay, we won't kill him. We'll throw him in the pit. I got my plan. I'll rescue him. And he was not in control. He also was taken by surprise. Events moved beyond him. Jacob was not in control of the situation. Jacob was at the mercy of what? Of the news. And what was the news? The news was his son was dead. Here's the garment. Here's the blood. Obviously, draw the conclusion. Oh, Dad, we love you. Oh, Dad, we grieve with you. Oh, Dad, we're so sorry that that Joseph, he wasn't our favorite brother, but we know you loved him. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And they comforted him. He was not in control of the situation. He was in control of, of lies that he accepted as the truth. There's one story allowed And that was done by the ones that did the reporting of the news. And it was a lie that caused immense grief. They were fueled by hatred. How much would you have to hate someone to do this and to let a lie live for decades? And think about this. All these people. I I lived in a family with six kids. The secret always gets out. It never got out. Think about that. Think about the pack that held them, that lie. Think about Jacob crying on Joseph's birthday and thinking back or finding some memento. And them, wink, wink, nod, nod, whose turn is it to to, to cry with dad over what we did and the lie we told? Joseph then was not in control of the events that brought him to the throne in Egypt. What happened in Joseph's life? He was sold as a slave. He's marching one way. We'll take him to Egypt. We'll sell him there. He could have been sold to any house in Egypt, any any rich house that bought slaves in Egypt. He got the one with Potiphar, and he got the one with Potiphar's wife. He wasn't in control of that. He could have been in a house with a, a, a nice wife. Said, you know, I don't think he was that much of a chick magnet, surely, but she wanted him bad. And at those circumstances, he didn't ask for that. And he left his coat. And those circumstances, because of who she was, put him in prison. He wasn't in charge of what prison. He wasn't in charge of which prisoners were there at the time. He wasn't in charge of any of it. We may not realize it, but we are not in control. We want to be. It feels bad when we're not in control. But our lives, if we're honest, are like spinning on ice. And if we're lucky, we we remember to turn into the curve and not the opposite way, which is instinctively. And so we have some semblance of control a little bit while we're out of control. But who knows where that thing is going to slide? Who knows? We're not in control. Not in control. 
None of them were in control of the famine. It wasn't Joseph's or Pharaoh's research and analysis that said we've looked at the weather patterns, we've looked at at crop analyses, we've seen this, we've tried that, and there's a famine coming. They weren't in control. Had God not told them, it would have just hit. Who knows? Who knows? We're not in control. Friends of ours in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, talked about uh, losing their house uh, and everything in that big storm that went through there last summer. Paula buys me old baseball t-shirts sometimes. Uh, There is a baseball team from the 1910s. They were in Zanesville, Ohio. You know what the name of their team was? The Zanesville Flood Sufferers. I'm like, I want that t-shirt. We're not in control. Things hit us. Floods come. Storms come. COVID comes. Could we have stopped it? Had we known? Us? Any of us? No. Not in control. The brothers weren't even in control of keeping their secret a secret, were they? Because even that got out. They thought at least we can control our tongues and we can keep this a secret. And yes, the old man will go down to Sheol thinking his son died. The point being this, from this story, no control, even if we fight so hard for it, if we wrestle for it and want it. Well, then who is in control? Is there control? Is it just random? We're taught. The Bible teaches us, and the Holy Spirit helps us, gives us the faith as we believe what we read and we understand that God is in control every step of the way, each and every step of the way. God is the one who is in control. It says about Joseph, God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. When did God join up with Joseph to be with him? in the caravan, in Potter's house, in the prison, on the throne. Every step of the way, God was with him, through good, through bad. God was in control of an out-of-control situation. Now, there came a famine. Did it just come, or was it sent? And we know the story. The brothers went down, and Joseph was there. And the Bible tells us that God used those events where God was in control to keep his promise to Abram and to preserve his people. And God was in control of all of it. Genesis 50, verse 15, it's the one that Dave read a little bit earlier. Probably the most famous, one of the most famous verses in in scripture as we think about God's providence. Joseph's brother saw their father was dead. Uh Uh-oh. Now he is dead. He went down to Sheol. Before he died, he was able to to give that customary blessing to Joseph's children. They all were moved in. Pharaoh loved them. Pharaoh gave them that land down there. They were fine. But then the dad's dead, and the brother said, Oh, no. Now we're in trouble. Here comes the vengeance. He at least cared about his dad, But now there's no dad to worry about. And what can this powerful man, the second most powerful man in the most powerful country in the whole 
known world at that time, what will he do to us? They got together again and came up with this little story. When they saw their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. I think that's called projection. That's how they, in their state, would have acted. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Wasn't in his mind at all. He had seen God's hand all the way through. He was reunited with the brothers. Perhaps in Potiphar's house, perhaps in the jail, perhaps at some time he had said, I'm going to forgive them if I get the chance. Who knows what he had been thinking as he's marching away from them after they'd sold him as a young man. But there was a heart and a deep understanding of God's being in control of circumstances. And he wept when they said this to him. His brothers came and fell down before him. They said, we are your servants. We're your servants. And they bowed down to him. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Am I God? I'm not God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. God was always in control. None of the players in that story were in control. Was God ever out of control? Think of a time. Back in the youth pastor days, I would say, when was God ever out of control? I'd make them come up with a time, and I'd tell them that they were wrong. <laughs> and, uh, but I'd get them thinking. They'd be thinking. When was a time where it seemed like God was out of control? I'd say that survey would say this, the cross. That's when it would seem like the plan went haywire. Wouldn't it seem like if God sent uh, his son to the earth to take on himself flesh and to die like that, ridiculed, naked on a cross, even his disciples fleeing, few women, including his mom there. I guess the disciple who Jesus loved, John, was hanging around. One account says he was gone. One account says he was there for a little while, long enough for Jesus to say, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. But gone. And you'd say, man, God's plan must have failed. It's tragic. How could it have been any worse for Jesus followers than that day when he was executed. Even they would have had hope while he was arrested and tried. They would have been in the crowd and and Pilate's or Herod, whichever one it was, I forgot which one it was. I believe it was Herod who said, it was Herod who said, shall I release Barabbas or Jesus? And they said, Barabbas, Barabbas. But they were kind of hoping maybe there's still a chance. Maybe the people will say Jesus, Jesus. And they heard them all say Barabbas. The mob that were stirred up to say that, by the way, the mob that were manipulated, 
And you think about those disciples, and finally he's really dead. These Romans knew their business. He's really dead. And you think about the loss and the helplessness. Think about possibly even the sense of betrayal those disciples felt because they left all to follow him. And he had told them about a kingdom. They believed in that kingdom so much that they said, hey, we want to sit on one on your right and one on your left. And they were even fighting over spots in the kingdom. They believed all of that. And there he is dead. There went the dream. And they could easily say God failed. They could easily say we believe Jesus was who he said he was, but he just wasn't that powerful of a God, perhaps. What would you have said? But God was in control even in all of that, right? And Stephen and the others in Acts are preaching, and they're saying, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He talked about this. God was not even out of control on that darkest day in human history when we killed God. It looked dark, but it was part of God's plan. And if you're worried and you think it looks dark and feels dark, understand what's going on these days is God's plan. God is not in heaven right now sitting in some office with maps on the wall saying to the angels, we're about to lose America. Oh no, what shall we do? We better send some support. And the angels aren't behind his back rolling their eyes and saying, we told you so, we told you so. There's nothing like that going on in heaven. We are surprised. We are seeing events move so rapidly and we don't know what's going on. But God in heaven knows exactly. He's always in control, ever in control of everything. This is God's world. God created this world out of nothing. God created every person that's alive. He created you and he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And you can take comfort if you're a little nervous right now. And if evil, power-wielding people who don't love God but love control think they are the ones in charge, they'll soon find out what the rest of us peons know. We peons know it to be true that there is one power center and that is God. What's going on? We don't know. We can sit and say, why is this happening? Why is this happening? I wish this wouldn't... In the end, we can say God is in charge and God knows. We're not in control. Good. God is in control. Great. Trust God. Quickly, how do we apply this? And and how do we practically look at Stephen and Joseph and God's control? And how do we live our important lives in this day and age as Christians? I just listed some things to wrap this up. By the way, by the way, I need, to, I need to go find this. There was a study that came out, and they're looking at people's mental health during COVID. And every categories, races, 
genders, ages, economics, all the groups they line people up in. Everybody's mental health is going down. It's, it's a crisis, they say, is coming. There's one group that actually is doing better these days uh, than they were before. And that is the once-a-week, I don't know if they use the word evangelical, but they call them the once-a-week church-going Christians. And we know the answer for that is because we're being reminded that we're not in control, but it's pushing us, if we, if we are Christians, it's pushing us to trust our God as we trust him for our very souls. And uh, so, anyway, how we respond during these days, one, realize that God is sovereign. Acknowledge where ultimate power lies with God. That's what I've been saying. That's where we'll, we'll move on from that. You've got to know that and remember that. Two, find out what it takes to submit to God. How do I get right with that God that's in charge? If there is a God who's in charge, do what it takes to be right with that God. That's, that's the God you want. Why mess around with the imposter gods? Why create your own God to worship? Why worship a God that is failing other people? Why say, it's not working for you, but I'll make that my God now. And I'm talking about things like uh, any kind of addiction to anything, any kind of uh, bank account, any kind of earthly thing that's going to be gone anyway. Why make that your God when there's a God who is in control? Find that God. Get right with that God. Come back to that God. That's your God. Three, stop thinking that you're in control. You're not. You don't create your own luck, as people say. You don't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and you're not the doctor. You're not. God is God. Submit to that God. Next, the way to be right with God is to see that the barrier is removed between you and God. Say, I'd like to be right with God, but there's something that doesn't feel right. How do I get right with that God? And we know. We know because we're made that way. We're born. We know we're not right with God in our natural state. May seem like a hard conversation, and most of the hard conversations we've ever had seemed so hard. Oh, they seem, oh, I gotta have a hard oh, we gotta have a hard conversation. Pray for me, I gotta talk, I gotta have this conversation. It's gonna be so hard, hard, hard. Sometimes when you sit down to have that hardest of hard conversations, the only hard part's the first sentence. And then it just flows. What's your hard conversation with God? I've sinned against you in so many ways. I repent of those sins. I acknowledge that you cannot be bought or bribed or manipulated. I place my faith in Jesus as the one who removes the barrier. Thank you for forgiveness through Jesus and for giving his righteousness to me. What did Jesus say? Anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. That's the old King James Version. No way. You come to me that way, I'm not going to send you away. Get right with that, God. And having done that first critical thing, then take a look at how God wants you to live as a Christian. We've got an obligation to live as Christians in a crazy world. God has given you a body. 
Take care of the body God has given you. Be a good steward of that body. The healthier you are, the more you're able to do to focus on him. Your mind's not on your health. Your energy is there. And you can do good for God in a hard time that the world is facing. I'm the choir that I'm preaching to, by the way. Okay? Um, take care of the body God gave you. Second, he's given you a bank account and some means of income. Be a good steward of what he continues to give you. Get out of debt slavery if you can. Serve God, not serve the, the, the company that, that charges you that high interest and owns you. See, the resources is something that he's given you to glorify him. Spend accordingly. If it takes accountability with your wife or husband or, or, or somebody that, that knows you, submit yourself accountability. Am I being a good steward with my money? Because it's not mine. Then this one's like it. Take a good look at your stuff. How do your possessions act as tools in your calling and mission to glorify God in a difficult time? Is it possible that some of them are even acting against you? God gives you a gift, and then that gift is the distraction. (laughs) You give your kid a present, and then they spend all their time on that, and they don't talk to you because they're spending time with their present that you bought for them. You go, wait a minute. I probably shouldn't have given them that. (laughs) I've lost something. And I think they've lost something too. God gives us things, but he gives us things to enjoy because he loves us. But he also gives us those things to employ for his kingdom. That lamp is God's. This table is God's. Those pictures are God's. The computer is God's. It's God's and he gave it to me. How do I use it in a critical time? In short, manage your situation wherever he has placed you, including your time. We glorify God. We look at hard days and do we cower in a corner and wait it out? Most cases we're not called to do that. The call to be salt and light still applies. What in the world is God doing? As we close, God is doing God things. God is doing God things. And God things include the good and the bad. God, that's why we, in the insurance policies, they always called, used to call them acts of God. I don't know if they do anymore. Acts of God, we would say. The unexplainable. And God works good in the midst of chaos. God is doing God things. God is sustaining us. God is moving us toward what we find at the end of the book of Revelation. We're talking about this great reset that's coming now. Well, yeah, maybe it comes, maybe it doesn't come. It's interesting to read about what people are planning and people that think they're the boss of the world think they're planning. The only great reset I understand is the one at the end of Revelation when the Lord comes back. And there is a resetting that's permanent and final. Sheep one way, goats one way, heaven forever for God's people. You want to be in that group. You want to be God's people. That's what you want to do. That's the choice 
It's the best choice to make. Trust that God. Throw in with that God and his work and plan. Respond to that God when he calls you. And we're going to have fun. We're going to enjoy. We're going to do what God wants us to do. Um, Here's for me. Here's my personal deal. I told Paul, I said, I am done. I can check the news 10 times a day, and the headline's still going to be the same. Or maybe worse, but it's not going to be better. Uh, I can't affect this. I can pray, so I'll pray. But I'm going to do what the Bible says. Help people. You can help Christian people and further God's kingdom by helping the Christians and and working together. Uh, Do God's work when he gives you people. You do that. And we'll do that. And no sooner had I said that and thought that than God gave an opportunity. I'm going to need somebody's help probably, eventually. Get this text from some guy. I thought I was like, somebody's spying on me. Who is he? Wait a minute. Hi, this is it. He gave a name. What's that name again? Dear Sill. Duracell or Dear Sue. <laughs> so that's how, that's how I'm remembering it. I'm like, this is Dear Sue. I said, I don't know anybody named that. Zip. <laughs> Here comes again. It's a phone number. Well, he's a friend of Tito's. He's somebody I met. He's, he's the head percussion drum guy over at Walnut Hill. He said, my wife and I desperately need to learn English. He said, we came and I heard, and he heard, I said, where'd you hear about me? Tito. Um, he said, uh, we came over here five years ago. All we knew was Portuguese. We learned Spanish first. I can't be here 10, 15, 20 years and not know English. Please help me. He's a Christian brother. This is his wife. I just said I'm going to help people, and I'm going to help Christians as much as I can. So it's like, yeah, we'll do that. I had just rejected Pastor Ye from the Chinese church had said, I've got a couple that needs to learn English. Well, I do English as a second language. I just meet on Thursday nights with Zoom with Karini right now, and when we're getting through it. And I said to, to Pastor Ye, well, I don't know if I can help this couple yet. Let's get COVID behind us in a couple of months, and then I'll get back, and we'll all feel safe again and everything. But I got back with Pastor Ye. I said, send that couple, because I think a Chinese couple talking to a Brazilian couple in English, that's going to help them all. We're going to have to work. And that's going to be good. Uh, Bruno stayed around after Deacon's meeting and met Dear Sue. Bruno and Karini are going to come, and even though Karini's a little ahead, she's going to step back and start over so she can start with these guys. And then just to round it out, Priscilla was cleaning the building, and I had Priscilla in one of my English classes uh, from the Brazilian church before, and she's going to join us. Listen, where's God at work? How can we help our brothers and sisters who are here how do we help them be successful? If it's going to be an economic crash, if it's going to be whatever it is, if there's going to be persecution on Christians, well, who's going to feel the brunt? How do we help make everybody better? And if this is what God's doing, let's do it. Your calling may be different with different people in a different circumstance, but understand, we're wrapping it up here. 
because we've been saved through the darkest day, through God providentially, every plan working, Jesus to come, Jesus to go to the cross, to take our sins upon himself, to forgive us, to make us right with him, to give us a purpose. Fact of the matter is, we don't have long on this earth uh, speaking. Man, we, we live, we go. Next generation may remember us. Three generations doesn't even know our names and who we are, wouldn't identify us. We have a shot here in this earth, and God has saved us. And how do we do? Well, we don't know what's coming, good or bad, but we do. We do what God wants us to do. We latch ourselves on to the truth, and we help God's people. We help people as much as we can, and we share the gospel. And that's it. Amen. Okay? Next week, we come back. Stephen's moving. We're going to wrap up his sermon. We're going to think about Moses and God's people and slavery and that deliverance. And then Stephen is going to have his life ended. Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for